wonder, have any of you been walking in fog? It's quite an interesting experience. Walking in fog can be quite disorientating. There's a kind of eerie silence as you walk in fog, and you can end up walking round and round in circles without uh, realizing where you are. It can uh, uh, really put you off. There was once when I was in the mountains of North Wales walking in thick fog, and although I had a map... I'd completely lost my bearings of where I was. This was the days before fancy GPSs and things like that, so I couldn't just uh, call up and see where I was. But uh, I kind of knew roughly where I was, but I couldn't um, uh, really locate um, where I was. And the the path was there, and it wasn't quite in the direction or or the kind of shape um, that I expected it to be. And then all of a sudden, the clouds parted, And I could see a mountain peak and I could see the edge of a little bit of a lake. And all of a sudden, I knew where I was. I could get my bearings. I could see where I was on the map and could make my way forward. Uh, I didn't know where everything was, but I knew enough to get back onto the, uh, the right path. Now, in Bible history, the 400 years before the story of the Nativity was uh, termed by many people the silent years. It was the years between uh, the prophet Malachi and uh, the New Testament as we know it. And it seemed to the Jewish nation that God had kind of gone silent. Um, There weren't the prophets, they weren't uh, um, speaking out. Um, People didn't seem to have the, the same encounter and experience with God. There was no communication, it would appear, from God. It seemed like God had gone silent. And then um, we see um, that they seem to have turned their relationship with God into more of a religion. They were kind of following rules and they were making up their their own rules often. Um, Worship was not the same as it had been. In many ways, they seem to have forgotten the prophecy that was in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. So I'm just going to read the uh, final uh, verses of Malachi because it has a, a relevance. So the last uh, um, verses in the Old Testament. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Heavy words. But that was the kind of last thing that uh, God had really spoken through his prophets. And then um, through the veiled darkness of these silent years, suddenly God sends an angel. He sends a messenger with good news. He breaks through the veil of that um, darkness. And again, I'm going to read a few um, verses just to put the context of uh, uh, around Zechariah's song. And if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, uh, we're in uh, uh, Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. 
Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And so it goes on. But here we've got Zechariah, who was uh, a Jewish priest, um, going about his duty, I guess going into uh, the temple on that day, not necessarily expecting anything different from all the previous times he'd gone in. And then suddenly there's this angel that uh, appeared to him and and gave him quite a startling message that his wife, who uh, was old and uh, was unable, it seemed, to have uh, children, uh, she was going to be giving birth to a son. Wow, absolutely incredible. And the angel went on and prophesied, and here's the interesting link to to Malachi, uh, if you look at verse 16 and 17. Um, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi had ended his prophecy saying that God was going to send Elijah again. Wow, how was he going to do that? You know, Elijah had uh, had died. Um, But here is John the Baptist being prophesied that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. God was beginning to fulfill his prophecies. And so we fast forward to the birth of uh, John the, John the Baptist, and uh, although I'm not going to read it, um, uh, as a result of um, Zechariah not really believing, he was kind of astounded at what the angel said, and as a result of his lack of faith, he was unable to speak for the nine months during uh, um, Elizabeth's pregnancy. Um, I gave him a lot of time to think, I guess, <laughs> and uh, to ponder on what he'd been told about, um, but then after um, the birth of John the Baptist, um, his uh, tongue is, uh, is loosened. He's given his speech back. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us uh, um, Zechariah's song that uh, um, we have read before. It's a song that is full of references and allusions to Old Testament scriptures. It's full of um, um, kind of prophecies and and promises and starting to make sense of them. It's almost as if the clouds had opened up and we were starting to see that path. You know, Billy Graham, when he was asked what the greatest event in world history was, he said the following. The first coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in world history and will climax with his second coming. This is the centerpiece of God fulfilling his promises, the pivot around which revolves all the promises of God. And here we have Zechariah 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophesying about what this uh, event was going to lead to. So how on earth do we unpack these words of the prophecy? How do we understand the content and the meaning and the relevance for us? And in doing so, I want to use inspiration from this guy. Does anybody know who it is? Columbo, yeah. Columbo is, uh, I think, my favorite uh, TV detective. And uh, for those of you that haven't enjoyed watching him, there's a, there's a very uh, particular style of the way that the stories of Columbo are, are told. You see, Columbo uh, never appears until probably 20, 30 minutes into the program. And the first part of the, of the program, you get to see exactly how the murder was committed. Right? There is absolutely no doubt about it. Right? You know uh, how it was done. Uh, you even see little clues being left, you know, the wine cork dropped on the floor or the bunch of keys left uh, where they perhaps shouldn't be. You know exactly what's going on. There is no mystery behind it. Um, and yet Columbo comes in in the middle of it all somehow without that knowledge and all you don't know is how he's going to piece all these things together and how he's going to catch uh, the criminal. And you know, um, I don't know whether this is heretical or not, but you know, I, I read the Bible a little bit like a kind of Columbo mystery, right? Because in this book, God has told us what's going to happen. He's told us exactly what has happened right from the creation of the world through to his second coming and eternity future. For us, if we can understand God's word, there is no mystery, It's like we've seen it all happen, laid out before us. And really, the only mystery is, how is he going to do it? How is it going to work out? What are all the details? What are all the prophecies um, that are in this word? Some of them easy to understand, and some of them really, really complicated, actually. How are they going to work out? How will we see them unfold? And you know, for Zechariah, he would have known um, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, um, you know, he didn't have the, um, the luxury of the, of the New Testament <laughs> writings. They hadn't been written at that time. But he knew all the promises. And if you, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that in there, hidden, are all the truths. Actually, you don't really need to have the, the New Testament. Um, it's great to have it because it, it provides so much context. But all of God's promises are in the Old Testament as well. They might be a little bit hidden. It might be like we're walking through the fog at times, but they are there. Right from the creation of the world, God has um, shown his plan, set out his purpose. And that's why the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, because they knew that a Messiah had been promised. They just didn't know how. (laughs) They didn't know what to expect, what it would look like. And uh, as we know, it was... uh, Uh, A bit of a surprise um, to them, and not all of them kind of got it. So, taking inspiration from Columbo, he always says what he needs is he needs to understand the means and the motive and the opportunity for somebody to, in his case, commit a crime. Now, we're not talking about a crime now, (laughs) um, but I want to use that kind of pattern of understanding what God did. What did he, what was his motive behind all this? 
What was the means that he used and what opportunity did he bring as a result of it? We're going to use this approach to solving mysteries to look in to this word to answer the why, the how, and the so what behind Zechariah's uh, song. So first of all, I'm going to look at the motive. Why was God intervening in this way? And I think there are five key motives that I've highlighted there. So first of all, verse 68, if you're following in your Bible or it's up on the screen there. The primary reason, I think, why God sent his son was that we are his people. Chris alluded to this before. We are his creation, his people. We're his beloved creation. We looked, remember, on Climate Sunday at the earth being the Lord's and everything in it, and we are part of that everything. We are his people. His motive was driven by the fact that uh, we are his. The second thing around the motive in verse 70, as he has said, You know, there's over 450 prophecies and typologies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus, that give us a a flavor of who Jesus is. And uh, um, really what uh, God is doing here is he's fulfilling those promises. He's made promises and he is going to keep them. And they are fulfilled in the person Jesus. Third motive was that so... We could be saved from our enemies. His desire is that we're saved. He doesn't want us to be um, under oppression. He doesn't want us to be afflicted because we are his people. The question is, I guess, do we recognize that we need saving? And secondly, do we know what we need to be saved from? The language in Zechariah's um, uh, song here seemed to suggest that we need saving from our enemies, maybe um, you know countries around where the Jews were, they were their enemies. But I think it goes much deeper than that, much deeper. See, in Ephesians, uh, we're told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the powers of the spiritual um, realm. And God saving us from our enemies is saving us from the powers of sin, the powers of death. He wants to save us from our ultimate enemy. Then, verse 72, his motive was to show us mercy and to remember his holy covenant. Now, mercy, you may know, is not getting what we deserve. We deserve um, the punishment of sin. But he wants, us, he wants to show us that mercy, to remember the promises he gave to us. And then the fifth motive that I picked out from Zechariah's song was to enable us to serve him. He wanted to restore that relationship, that intended relationship that he had with us. He didn't want us to be silent as it was in those silent years. He wanted to restore what was lost. So, his motives. He's a kingly God, a redeeming God, a merciful God, a faithful God. We are his people and his desire, and his motive was to show us mercy and to redeem us. So what about the means that he used? We've got the motive, now what about the means? 
And the first one, and I think this is the most important, he has come. His means, the only means, was for him to come. Jesus, fully God, come to earth. Wow. Verse 69, he raised up, and in the language of the um, uh, the scriptures, we've got uh, a horn of salvation, but that means a mighty king. The word horn is, uh, is, uh, can be translated and understood as a mighty king. It's used elsewhere in scriptures. So those familiar with, with Daniel and, um, and Revelation, they will know that rulers, the mighty powers, were described as being horns. Um, you've got in Daniel the, uh, um, the horns of the goat and the rams and so on. But in this instance... This is the horn of salvation from the line of David. Jesus himself, the mighty king of salvation. And when I was looking at this, I I was looking back in 1 Samuel um, at the anointing by uh, Samuel on David. And it was interesting that Samuel used a horn of oil to anoint David. Not quite worked out what the significance of that is, but I'm sure there must be something that... uh, um, there's this kind of a symbolic anointing and him becoming uh, a mighty king. And then verse 73, the oath that he swore to, uh, to Abraham. This is part of the means. Um, and yes, if you look back in Genesis 22, you'll see that God promised to bless Abraham and make his descendants numerous. But I think, again, there's more to it than that. If you know the story, it's uh, Abraham is instructed to take his uh, son Isaac and to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Strange thing for a father to be asked to do. But God was, was testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham and Isaac were walking up and um, they were taking the wood and, and the fire with them. And Isaac asked his father, he's, I don't know whether this is a naive question or not, but uh, um, you know, we've got the wood and we've got, uh, um, got the fire here, but where's the sacrifice? And do you know what answer Abraham gave? He gave some really interesting words. He said, God himself will provide the sacrifice. Prophetic, not just that God would send a ram that they could um, sacrifice there and then, But ultimately, God himself would come to earth to be our sacrifice. Wow. Unbelievable. Absolutely incredible. So, the means God himself was coming to earth. There was no other sacrifice good enough. Verse 76, he was preparing the way. And verse 77, he was giving us knowledge of salvation. This wasn't to be a secret. This wasn't to be hidden and shrouded in um, um, fog. This was to be clear for all to see. The way was um, to be open to us. And verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, not getting what we deserve, but what we want. His means, he gave himself as a sacrifice, and he makes way the salvation makes the way of salvation clear to us. And then lastly, the opportunity. This was not the opportunity for Jesus, but the opportunity for us as a result of what God gave us. Two things, two very simple but hugely powerful things. First of all, verse 77, 
the opportunity for us to have forgiveness of sins. The opportunity to be forgiven, to be released, as it were, from our enemies. And verse 79, to come out from living in darkness in the shadow of death and to walk in the path of peace. This is Zechariah's song as it unfolded, full of um, the promises, full of references to, uh, to prophecies, and full of this insight into what God is really doing through Jesus. Zechariah had only been told by the angel that his um, wife was going to uh, give birth to a child. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, the whole story begins to unpack. It's almost like the, uh, the light is starting to shine through the clouds. We're getting clarity now of really what is going to happen as this breaks through. Remember what I said near the start when Billy Graham was asked what the greatest event in world history was. He said the first coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest event and will climax with his second coming. This is the centerpiece of God fulfilling his promises, the pivot around which revolves all the purposes of God. Then he went on to say, Jesus came the first time in a humble way, as a baby cradled in a manger in Bethlehem. But the next most important event will be the second coming as Jesus, King of Kings. I wonder what will our response be this Christmas time? You know, we live in a world that seems to be stumbling around in fog and cloud at the minute, not really clear where we're heading. Can we see through all of that to God's bigger picture, his plans breaking through, wanting to break through into this troubled world in which we live? Will we see Christmas as just a nice story, the kind of thing that Chris was uh, describing before? Or will we see it as the most momentous event in the history of the world when God himself came to save us? Amen.